So one of the things uh, that we all have in common, uh, doesn't matter kind of who you are and, and where you're from, there is one thing that all of us uh, have in common in, uh, in here right now, and it's, that it's this, we all have faith. Every single one of you here uh, has faith, no matter who you are, no matter your background, regardless of religious or irreligious, uh, every single one of us, we all have faith. Now, I, I'm guessing there are many here today who would say, uh, I have faith in God. My faith is, is established. My faith is rooted in God. And to you, I'd say that is good. Uh, that is good thing. Uh, but you need to know that there are going to be people, uh, maybe even in here, and certainly people in your life, who would say, you're insane. You are absolutely crazy. Why would you put your faith in something you can't see? Why would you put your faith in, in someone you can't even hear? I mean, like you're hearing me right now. And so there will be people who would call into question, you're crazy for believing in someone uh, that you can't see. So there are people like that. And I'm guessing there are going to be some here today who you would say, I don't have faith in God. And if that's you, what you need to know, what I'd want you to know is no faith in God is not the absence of faith. Your faith is just placed in someone or something else. So you might say, well, I don't have faith in God, but that doesn't mean there's no faith. There's just faith in something different, uh, maybe a person or maybe a thing, uh, but you still have faith. And so what people might say to you is, well, gosh, why would you put your faith in that? Like we all have faith, no matter who you are, we all have faith. And so today we're going to be talking about something we already have, but which is faith. But what I want us to wrestle with today is this, this question is, well, what is the object of your faith? Uh, what is the object of your faith? Tim Keller, in just a brilliant book called The Reason for God, said this, uh, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to a weak faith in a strong branch. And I just love the simplicity of his wisdom there. Uh, many people will say they have faith, but the question really comes down to what is the object of your faith? Now, if you're a Christian and you would say, hey, my faith is in God, but the object of my faith is in Jesus, I would applaud that and I would say that's great. Someone comes up to you, though, and says, hey, I'm curious to know. I've been thinking about this thing called Christianity, and I'm just, I'm intrigued. Uh, I know you're a Christian. I know that the object of your faith is Jesus, so why? What would you say? If someone came to you and said, why have you decided to make Jesus the object of your faith, what would you say? And I really want to press you on this, uh, because there are things that you just might know to say, because that's what you think you're supposed to say. But is there a reason uh, that you personally have put your faith, Jesus, as the object of your faith? So why have you done that? Is there a reason? Is there an explanation? And I would even press you a little bit further to say, is your answer to that question of why have you decided to make Jesus the object of your faith, would it actually be compelling? Would it actually compel somebody else who's wrestling with where their faith is going to be and who the object of their faith is? Would it actually compel somebody to say, well, that makes sense. That is a compelling, logical, well-thought, thoughtful answer. And that would compel them towards faith in Jesus. Now, here's a question. If you're a non-Christian, and again, you still have faith. Uh, it's not that you don't have a lack of faith. You just said, I don't have faith in God. So if you're a non-Christian, do you know why you've decided not to have faith in Jesus as the object of your faith? 
Why have you made that decision? Because it's not enough just to say, well, I don't have to worry about that. Only someone who's placed their faith in Jesus has to have a response or reason. Well, I'm going to ask you the same question. If you're here today uh, and you've decided not to, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Did you weigh the evidence? Did you consider? Did, how did you come to this conclusion that I will not, I cannot place my faith or Jesus as the object of my faith? See, both faith in God and no faith in God must have an answer for why they place their faith where they do. Both ha must have an answer for why the object is whatever it is. Um, so a question non-Christian or a Christian has to wrestle with then, is the object of my faith actually worthy of my faith? Again, we all have it. It's just a question of, is the object of my faith worth placing faith in? Now, for roughly four months, uh, mid-January, we've been walking through the letter or uh, the book of Hebrews, and the author has been leading his audience, both them and consequently us, to make one conclusion. From chapter 1 to where we are in chapter 11, the conclusion that he's been wanting us to make is Jesus is worthy of all of your faith. He alone is greater than everything. Where he started in chapter 1 and where we are right now in chapter 11 he wants the men and women in that community to see that there is no one or nothing greater than Jesus to be the object of your faith, because he is greater than anything and everything. Uh, and as, you know, if you've been around, you've heard these different messages through Hebrews, if the object of your faith is things like law or works or performance or being spiritual or being religious, if that is the object of your faith, well, then you're going to be really disappointed. If the object of your faith is a person a prophet, a priest, a king, or somebody else, well, you're going to be very disappointed. If the object of your faith is in a religious system, a structure, a temple, a building, a sacrificial system, you're going to be disappointed. But the whole message is faith in Jesus alone leads us to this one amazing truth, this one amazing reality, that if your faith and Jesus is the object of your faith, then as we looked at last week in Hebrews 10, it said this, by his death, Jesus opened a new, life-giving uh, way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. And I love that, that verse. If your faith, if Jesus is the object of your faith, then guess what? You get to live both now in the presence of God, both now and for eternity in the presence of God. Now, you might have already come to this question, but uh, I haven't even defined what faith is. So we're asking about faith, we're asking about the object of your faith, but before we go on, it would be helpful to actually define what faith is. And thankfully, Hebrews gives us one of the best definitions or descriptions of what faith is. And this is how the author of Hebrews defines faith in the verse 11, verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about the things we cannot see. So faith, confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. And what I love about this definition is faith is defined in relationship to hope. They are connected. It's one thing to have hope. All of us have hope. There's not one person that I've met that does not have hope. They have hope in something. But if the object of our faith uh, is actually worthy of our faith, then there will be absolute assurance of what we hope for will actually come to pass. 
See, many people have hope, but the, the, the object of their faith, there's not much certainty that that thing, that person, that whatever it might be, can actually make what we hope for actually come to pass. Uh, so here's a question. If faith is confidence that what we hope for will actually happen, then let me ask this question. Well, what is it you're hoping for? If hope and faith are very closely connected, and they are, then, and, and as scripture says, faith is the confidence um, uh, that what we hope for will actually happen, then what is it that you are actually hoping for? Think about that for a second. Someone asked you, hey, what is it you're really hoping for? What would you say? Again, Christian or non-Christian, how would you answer the question of what are you hoping for? And this is not going to be true of everyone, but I think many of us would ask, answer the question, what is it I'm hoping for is, I just would like to have things go well. I'd like to have just a good life. Uh, if I'm not married, I'd love to get married one day. I'd love to have a husband. I'd love to have a wife. And I'd love to have a family, and not just any family. I'd, I'd love my kids to be kind of normal and just, you know, fun, good kids and not go crazy. And I'd like to have a good job. I'd like to have a good career. I'd like to have maybe some money to do all of the things that, now I'm not talking about like crazy mad money, just money that could actually, you know, be able to afford me to do different things. I think a lot of us, Christian or non-Christian, would just simply say, I just would hope to have a good life. I would hope to not have to go through any pain or suffering or disappointment or anything. I just would like to have uh, a good life. So if that's how you might answer the question, if that's how friends of yours might answer the question, well, then here's some questions for you. Again, this is Christian, non-Christian as well. How will that good life you're hoping for become your reality? How will that, the thing you're hoping for, if you really just want to have a good life, if that's what you're hoping for, and good life might be defined in good work, good job, good career, good positions, great place to live, great wife, great husband, great kids. Well, then you have to think, well, uh, how will that good life you're hoping for become your reality? And here's what I want you to catch. Now, how you answer that question reveals the object of your faith. How you're going to answer that question of how will all of these things happen, that good life you want, how will that actually happen, how will that come to pass? Well, however you're answering that question will reveal to you where the object or what the object of your faith is. And I think if we're honest, if we just do some self-examination, a lot of us would say, gosh, I'm the object of my faith. What I'm hoping for, I'm trying to make accomplish. Or the object of our faith might not be ourselves. It could be I'm looking to my wife to bring hope fulfillment, so to speak, of that good life, or I'm looking to my kids, or I'm looking to a job, or possessions, or uh, titles and degrees. So that's an important question. How will that good life you're hoping for become a reality? And how you answer that's going to reveal where the object of your faith is. Second question would be, well, how much confidence do you have in the object of your faith being able to accomplish all that you're hoping for? Okay, that was a really long question. I will ask again. How much confidence do you have in the object of your faith being able to accomplish all that you are hoping for? Like 50%, 75%, 95%? Like how much assurance do you have that the object of your faith is actually going to be able to accomplish everything that you are hoping for? Now, many people would say, well, that's a dumb question, Michael. It's impossible to have 100% certainty of anything. 
I'm not certain that's uh, a dumb thing to say. Because two observations I would make about these, these questions I'm asking would simply be this. What we often are hoping for is just way too small. Like what we, how we answer the question of what we're hoping for is just too small. What if there's more to life than just this good life? What if there is a God and this God has so much more for you than just a good home and a good marriage and good kids and a good job and no suffering and no pain and possessions and all of these things? What if there's actually more? So I, my observation is what we're often hoping for is just way too small. And here's a second observation. Anything less than 100% confidence in the object of your faith is not worthy of your faith. If you cannot say with 100% assurance that the object of whatever my faith is can actually accomplish what I'm hoping for, I will tell you now, it is not worthy to put your faith. Why would you put your faith in someone or something that could maybe have a 75% chance of accomplishing what it is you're hoping for? So if these observations are true, then what should we be hoping for and it is even possible to have 100% assurance that the object of our faith will actually make those things come to pass. So what should we be hoping for? Again, faith and hope are so closely connected. So what should we be hoping for and is it even possible to have 100% assurance? Now, what I've loved about Hebrews uh, and just walking through Hebrews these past uh, four, four and a half months uh, is that if you were to ask the people who were initially reading this letter, hey, what is it you're hoping for? How do you think they'd answer the question? I think from my study of Hebrews and how the author is just even, what he's writing to them, I think the answer to the question of what is it that they're actually hoping for would just simply be, I want to be made right with God. Because they saw how fragile life was, And pain and suffering and persecution will have a great way to remind you uh, of just the brevity of life. And what they hoped for was not only that they would be made right with God and could walk with God, but these are men and women who had heard stories of God doing amazing things in their midst before. These are men and women who were familiar with the stories of how God just did powerful things. So what they were hoping for is that they would be able to walk with God, both now and just eternally, and experience his power, experience his presence, experience his protection, experience his care, experience his concern, experience his love. That's what they were hoping for. And the beauty of what the author of Hebrews has been doing and saying is, if that is what your hope is, to be made right with God both now and forever, and then experience just the power, the wisdom the the providence, the protection, the love of God, if the object of your faith is anything other than Jesus, the Son of God, that won't happen. If that's what you're hoping for, then the object of your faith, if it's not Jesus, then that hope, you can have no assurance. If that's what you're hoping for and you think the object of my faith is going to be my performance, it's going to be my religion, me being spiritual, me being good, whatever it might be, the author would say no. If the object of your faith is not Jesus, because only Jesus can give us 100% certainty that what we hope for, a life with God, experiencing his power, experiencing his presence, experiencing his care and love, only comes when Jesus is the object of our faith. So next week, uh, we're going to walk through 
most of uh, Hebrews 11, because Hebrews 11, if you're familiar with this chapter, is probably one of my favorite chapters in the whole uh, book of Hebrews, is about stories of men and women who just had incredible faith and their lives impacted so many people around them because of faith in God. Uh, and it's always encouraging to look at examples of men and women who have faith to be inspired to have faith as well. So next week, we're going to look at those stories. Uh, but this week, uh, I really, as I've just been praying and thinking about this, the conversations that I seem to have most often, most frequently with people go something like this. Mike, I'm really struggling in my faith. I, I really want to believe, but I'm just dying over here. Because everything in my life, everything in my current circumstance or situation, I'm just dying to hang on. Uh, and I have conversations with people who are asking great questions about faith, and they so want to make decisions about where to put their faith. So as I've been thinking and praying about what we do and what God wants to do in this time, uh, I really just wanted to sit with a question of faith. And very specifically, I wanted to share with you some things that I've learned about faith share some things with you that God has been doing with me to help grow my faith. Because if you knew me, I'm one who's got small faith, who's got weak faith. So I want to share with you, honestly, two things as it relates to faith and what faith is and what does it even look like to, to live a life of faith. I'll share with you these two things. Number one would be this. Faith in God is pleasing to God. Faith in God is pleasing to God. Whether you describe your current faith as small or medium size or large size or like XL or double XL, no matter what faith you have, faith in God is pleasing to God. Because I've struggled with this and I've met tons of people like, God must be so disappointed because I just filled with so many doubts and just so much confusion, and I look at other people, and they've just got this wicked, incredible faith. It's just awesome. You prick them, and they ooze like faith. I just wanted you to know that faith in God is, is actually pleasing to him. Hebrews eleven six says this, and it, it's impossible to please God without faith. Impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd really like to live a life that would be pleasing to God. And not from the posture of, I want to please God in hopes to get something from God, but more from the posture that God has given me everything that I need to know him and walk with him and enjoy him. And out of that overflow, I want to live a life that would be pleasing to him. But scripture makes clear it's impossible to please God without faith. So here's the question. What does it look like to have a faith that is pleasing to God? What does a pleasing faith look like? And again, I'm going to share a lot more of this next week, so please come back. But I just encourage you, a pleasing faith, one word, trust. It's the man or it's the woman who's just able to say, I trust. I trust, I trust you, God. I trust, I trust you. Now, I realize for some, and by the way, what I'm sharing with you this morning, my heart was not just to share this in hopes that it would be helpful or encouraging to you, but you need to know that there are people out there who are wanting to have conversations like this with you. And so my hope is not that you just walk away and be like, interesting message. 
My hope is that you would hear things and say, you know what, I feel a little bit more equipped to have a conversation tomorrow with someone about why I believe what I believe, because people are asking questions about faith. Now, they might not just come out to you directly at work tomorrow and say, hey, I'd like to have a conversation with you about faith. But if you listen to the questions that they're asking, if you pay attention to the things that they're saying, what men and women are screaming for is, the object of my faith is doing nothing for me. So my heart is not just to share this with you, but my heart is for you to share this with with your friends as well. So if faith says, God, I trust you, well, then we've already got a major sticking point because for some people, they would say, well, how do I trust a God I'm not even sure exists? How could you invite me to trust a God I don't even know if he's there? I don't even know if he is real. And as Hebrew says, you're not going to come to God if you don't even believe that he exists. So here's the question, a big question for us. Is there any evidence for the existence of God? And if yes, does the evidence of God reveal that he is a God worth trusting as the object of my faith? Is there any evidence that you could point to to say, because of this evidence, I've weighed it, I've considered it. Because of this evidence, I've made the conclusion that God is real, that there is a God. Is there any evidence that would support that, that would point someone towards that, whether it's you or or friends that you have? And not only is there evidence, is what the evidence points to, would it actually say, and this is who God is, and this is what God is like, and he is worthy of your faith. He is worthy to be the object of your faith, of your affection, of your trust. Now, that's a huge question. We could spend a lifetime talking about this. Uh, but we only have about 15 more minutes. And so I'm going to give you some thoughts on how I would answer this question. If someone asks me, uh, and these are the things that I've shared with people before. Number one, is there evidence? Yeah, there's evidence. The evidence first I'd share with you is creation points all people towards a creator. You are a created being. Your life, your existence, and the amazingness of who you are and how you work points to me to a creator. The universe that we live in screams that there is a creator. And this is what Hebrews 11.3 says. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. How did all of this happen? God's command. How did we get here? Who am I? How, how am I made up? How does the God's command. And it goes on that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. You catch that? Uh, Verse 3, by faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. So what I love about that one verse, despite not being able to see God, God's given us creation as evidence of his existence. If you're struggling to think God doesn't exist, a starting point is open your eyes. Just look around you. Look at the universe that you and I occupy. What we can see, creation bears witness to what we cannot see, which is God. Now, I realize that uh, some of you here might completely disagree with this statement, and that's okay. But I would go as far to say it takes greater faith for someone to say there is no creator behind this creation. Because the evidence does not even come close to supporting that. It takes an insane amount of faith, like triple XL type faith. For someone to say, I've considered all of this here in the world I live in, 
and I've come to the conclusion that there is no God takes an incredible amount of faith. And here's why. There's three things I would share with you to share with someone who might be wrestling with this of why it is such an incredible step of faith to believe that there is no God because you'd need to believe that nothing produces everything. If there is no creator, if there is no God, you would have to believe, your faith would have to say, well, I believe that nothing produced everything. You'd have to believe that non-life produces life. That there was no life, but then all of a sudden there is life, and you need to believe that randomness produces fine-tuning. You would need to somehow comprehend that out of chaos came what you and I see as, as we are. The human body is so intricate, so amazing. The universe is so amazing. So you would need to believe that randomness produces fine-tuning. And just believing those three things, to me, would take a tremendous amount of faith. Uh, J.P. Uh, Moreland is a philosopher, uh, theologian, scientist, and he said this. You can't get something from nothing. If the universe began with dead matter, having no conscious, uh, consciousness, how then do you get something totally different, conscious, living, thinking, feeling, believing creatures? How does that happen from materials that don't have that? But if everything started in the mind of God, we don't have a problem with explaining the origin of our mind. Again, that's a very simple way of saying the explanation of all of these things would point us back to that there had to be a creator. There had to be a designer, a creator. And here is now the question. Even if you came to the conclusion and someone came to the conclusion, yeah, okay, I get it. I could look at creation. And creation certainly makes a really strong case uh, that there is a God, that there is a creator God. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I'm a huge fan of C.S. Lewis. If you've never read him, after you're done with your Bible, read C.S. Lewis. What I love about C.S. Lewis is he started as an atheist, that there is no God. But after he weighed and examined and considered the evidence, he became a theist. A theist is not a Christian. A theist is just someone who says there is a God. And from his point of atheist to theist, it took him almost four and a half, five years uh, of walking through theism to the point where he finally made the decision after examining, weighing the evidence that he was a Christian. So as we consider the evidence of creation pointing to a creator, the question that we now have to wrestle with, well, if there is a God, then what is he like? Do we know anything about God that would point to his character that would encourage me to say, this God is a God who is worthy to be the object of your faith and your affection? And the beauty is scripture does. God came to man so that man could be with God. If you go all the way back to uh, Hebrews chapter 1 where we started, God came to man so that man could be with God. Hebrews 1 says this, And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. So simply put, if you really want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. Why? Because he's the Son. He's God in flesh. If you really want to know the heart of God, if you want to know the character of God, Jesus, Jesus radiates God's glory, and as scripture says, expresses the very character of God. Now, here's what I love about Hebrews. As we've been walking through, we learn so much about God. How? Through Jesus. 
Here's a few things we learn about God through Jesus just in Hebrews. We learn God's gracious. We learn that God is a gracious God. Hebrews 10 says this, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Jesus came so that we would, all sins would be forgiven. God is gracious. He looks at you and says, I don't remember those sins. If Jesus is the object of your faith, your sins I remember no more. Isn't that amazing to think that God, when he considers you, he doesn't look at you and see failure, mess up, sinner, rebellious, whatever. God looks at you and says, son, daughter. Why? Well, because what we learn about God through Jesus in Hebrews is God's gracious. We learn that God is able to help. Jesus came and he suffered so that when we suffer, we don't suffer as ones who suffer alone. We suffer because uh, Jesus came and suffered so that he'd be able to help us when suffering comes. Hebrews 2 says, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us. He is able to help us when we are being tested. So when you go through a storm, a trial, a persecution, a suffering of any kind, God says, I can help. I'm not one who watches from a distance, not caring, not concerned. I can help. Why? Well, because of what Jesus has done. How about this? We learn that God made a way for sinners to be in his holy presence. Jesus came to be our perfect priest, making a way for sinners to be in the presence of God. Uh, we looked at this last week, Hebrews 10. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. So again, if you want to know what God is like, we look to, to Jesus, who is God in flesh radiates the glory of God and is, as scripture says, expresses the very character of God. So if creation reveals the existence of a powerful God, a creative God, and Jesus reflects the beauty and the grace and the mercy and kindness of God, well then, how about this question? If creation speaks to God, points to God, and if Jesus explains and shows us this is who God is and this is what God is like, then why is faith so pleasing to him? Because my first point was just faith in God is pleasing to God. So why is it so pleasing to him? Well, because when we have God as the object of our faith, what we're saying to God is just simply this. I trust you. Do you know why Jesus tells us not to worry? Do you ever think about that? Because he simply tells us, do not worry. Why? Because I got this. You don't need to worry. Why? Because I have this. I have you. And I have this situation. I have this circumstance. I have got this. You can trust me. So when we are worrying, filled with anxiety or fear, or whatever it might be, big or small, what we're communicating to God is, I don't know if you got this. I don't know if you have this. I don't know if I can trust you. But why faith is so pleasing to God is faith declares to God, I trust you. Every time there is worry, anxiety, we send the message, God, I'm not sure if you got this. But faith, despite what you can see or cannot see, is pleasing to God when you say, I'll trust you. Uh, Corrie ten Boom, if you're familiar with her, was someone who went through the Holocaust and uh, just an incredible, incredible story. And uh, in her journal, uh, she wrote this, um, talking about suffering and having faith in the midst of, of a great deal of suffering. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, 
you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. And this is coming from someone who was very familiar with darkness, who was very familiar with evil. Would be very easy for her to say, where are you? How, if you're God and you're good, how could you possibly be allowing me to be in this darkness, this just place of just absolute evil? But I, what I love about the simplicity is what she says is, even in the midst of the darkness, I will sit still and I will trust. Can you imagine, and this might be some of where you are living right now, is it just feels really dark. It feels really hard. It feels really painful. It feels really confusing. It's just dark. There's twists and turns, and you don't know where, you just don't know anything. What faith that pleases God would say is, I will sit still, and I'll trust you. I trust that you have me where I am. I trust you. Now, I want to finish uh, with this last point of, it would be very easy for you to make the conclusion, all right, if faith is pleasing to God, I want to have a faith that pleases God, and I got to start working harder to have more faith. I got to start doing more. I got to start just working and focusing more harder on having faith. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but sometimes you people would say uh, such incorrect things of, well, gosh, if you had more faith, that probably would have happened. If you would have had more faith when you were praying, that person probably would have been healed. Or God would have answered that prayer if you just had more faith. And so the message gets sent to us, I just got to believe harder. I got to have a harder faith of, of believe more. And what I wanted you to catch, and just my, the second thing about faith is, faith in God is a gift from God that he will help grow in you. Faith is a gift from God that he will help grow in you. Hebrews 12, we're going to look at this two weeks from now. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the founder. He is the founder and perfecter of your faith. Paul, Apostle Paul says this in Romans. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that who's given you? That God has given you. Jesus is the founder of faith, the one who gives us faith. And what I love about this and what I want you to hear is we're set free from trying to work harder to, to produce something that only God can give. You are set free from trying to work harder to produce something in you that only God can give you. So rather than spending your days, your weeks, your months trying to produce a faith that you just can't, what Jesus says, no, 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 I'm the founder of your faith. God says, I am the giver of your faith. So faith is, uh, faith in God is a gift from God that he will help grow in you. There's a great story in the Gospels of a father, and he had a son, and his son was just possessed. He was sick and possessed by demons. And he comes to Jesus, and he just says to Jesus, if you can. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? What do you mean if I can? Jesus, of course I can. And the father, this is a story in Matthew uh, chapter, or Mark chapter 9, what do you mean if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. And the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus said, if there's faith, if there's faith in the object, in the object of your faith being God, if anyone believes, the father instantly cried out, what does he say? Okay, I get it. I'm going to go work harder to find faith that I, I clearly don't have. He looks to Jesus and says, will you help me? Will you help me overcome my unbelief? 
And sadly, what most people do is they're like, I'm riddled with unbelief. And so they try to go fix their unbelief void of the object of where their faith is called to be, which is in Jesus. And I love the father's wisdom. He just simply says, will you help me? Will you help me overcome what I can't overcome? Will you help me believe? So if faith comes from God, then how does God grow faith? He gives to us. How does God grow faith in us? If it comes from him and God wants to grow that, how does he grow faith in us? I wrote it in my journal like this, by putting us in situations where we will see his faithfulness. He will put you in a situation where you will see his faithfulness. And when you see the faithfulness of God in your life, that is the fuel that grows your faith. Now, I know that's not easy to hear, but the situation you might be in right now, if it's a hard one, a suffering one, a painful one, a physically painful one, a relationally one, an emotionally, whatever it might be, I know this might be hard to hear, but I just, it could be God's gift to you. Because faith comes from him, and he wants to grow your faith in him, and he will put you in situations where you'll get to see his faithfulness. And sometimes that comes through hard things. Uh, Oswald Chambers uh, wrote a great, de- wrote a great uh, devotional uh, called My Utmost for His Highest. If you're looking for a daily devotional, it's a great one. It says this, God brings us into particular circumstances to educate our faith because the nature of our faith is to make the object of our faith very real to us. I love that wisdom. It's not enough just to say, oh, I have faith. God says to you, oh, no, 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 but I want the object of your faith to be real. I don't want it to be theoretical. I want it to be real. I want it to be tangible. Because when the object of your faith becomes as tangible as God wants it to be, we're, our faith is, is growing because we see his faithfulness. Now, do you remember when um, Jesus uh, invited a guy named Peter? Peter was a disciple. And Jesus invited his disciple Peter to walk on the water. Here's my question. Do you think Jesus was trying to teach Peter how to be a water walker? Do you think that's why Jesus invited Peter to step out of the boat and to walk on the water? And clearly the answer is he wasn't teaching Peter how to be a water walker. Jesus was simply seeking to show Peter that if Jesus remained the object of his faith, that no matter where Jesus called him to go, Whether he was walking on water or walking on firm ground would not matter if Jesus remained the object of his faith. It would be easy to be like, Peter totally sank though. He totally sank. And I'm like, he totally did sink. But he sank out in the water, not in the boat. And as soon as he started to go down, whose hand does he see first? He sees the hand of Jesus reaching down to him. And this is what Jesus says to him in, in Matthew 14. Immediately Jesus reached out and grabbed him. You have little faith. He didn't say you have no faith. You're a terrible person. Get back in the water. He said, you have little faith, Jesus said. Why do you doubt? Sometimes we need to hear Jesus asking us that question. What is it that is causing, creating, stirring you to doubt me? Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for having no faith. He's seeking to grow Peter's faith by reminding him, Peter, if your eyes are on me, If I remain the object of your faith, there is no need to doubt. I was thinking about it uh, in the way my goofy mind works. 
I was like, I wonder what Peter did the next day. Can you imagine if Peter went out and he's standing at the shore and he's like, I'm going to try this again. I'm going to try to walk on water. I, I kind of messed it up last time and I want to show Jesus that I can be a water walker like him. And I imagine Peter just walking out and sinking again and coming back and Jesus coming on the shore. Uh, this is just in my brain. This is not in scripture. <laughs> just to be clear. And I imagine just Jesus just almost laughing like, Peter, what are you doing? And Peter would be like, dude, I'm totally trying to walk on water. And Jesus just looking and just love and grace for Peter, just, why, man? Why are you trying to walk on water? If the object of our faith ever becomes accomplishing something that we once failed at doing, then we will continue to sink. But growing faith will be seen in walking where Jesus is. Some of us are still trying to walk on water because when we tried it before, it didn't work, and we're going to keep getting it. And the object of our faith is now becoming making sure that we can stand up on water. And Jesus didn't invite you to walk on water. He invited you to walk with him. And whether the ground is really hard or it's liquid, if the object of your faith remains Jesus, then you get to enjoy walking with him and watching Jesus be faithful and his faithfulness will grow in you. Faith. I want to just finish with the question, kind of where we started. We all have faith. There's not one of us here who does not have faith. I realize our faith might be different. Some have faith in God and some don't. But I want us just to finish with the, the question of, is the object of your faith worthy of you putting your faith in? And to know how to answer that, you have to wrestle with what is the object of my faith today? What is the object of your faith? And if it's anything other than Jesus, I would say in love to you, it is something less than. Because what we're doing in Hebrews, what the author has been doing is trying to get us to see Jesus is worthy of all of your faith. He alone is greater than everything. So what is the object of your faith today? And before you answer too quickly, oh, it's Jesus and you're ready to move on to the next question, will you just say, God, will you examine my heart? Because I know for me, the object of my faith can subtly shift without even knowing that it shifted. I put the object of my faith on things that I want to do, things I'm excited to see, rather than keeping the object, the one who invited me to know him and walk with him.